Hello and welcome to Massey Ferguson Hay Talk, a show all about my favorite subject, hay and forage. Hi, I'm Matt LaCroix, North American Marketing Manager for Massey Ferguson and Heston by Massey Ferguson Hay Equipment. I grew up on a cow-calf and hay farm in Northeast Georgia and getting the best hay I can is a personal goal as well as a professional one. I've been working for Agco for 18 years and focused on hay for most of that time. So what is good hay? What makes some forage better than others? What are the ways our hay and forage lose value? And how do we prevent that? And what are the ways we can get a product we're proud of? Join us after the break where we talk to Dr. Jessica Williamson and learn more. Don't just wish for better hay. Demand Heston Hay. Visit your local dealer to see our full lineup of Heston by Massey Ferguson equipment or go to MasseyFerguson.us to learn more. That's MasseyFerguson.us. And now, let's talk hay. Hello and welcome back to Massey Ferguson Hay Talk. I'm your host, Matt LaCroix. I'm the North American Marketing Manager for Massey Ferguson and Heston by Massey Ferguson Hay Equipment. Today, we've got a very good guest for you. Her name is Dr. Jessica Williamson. She is Hay and Forage Specialist with AGCO, formerly with the Penn State Hay and Forage Extension Service. Uh, Jessica, first off, tell us how you got interested in the subject of hay and forage. Sure. So I grew up on a cow-calf operation in Western Maryland, um, about an hour south of where I live now in South Central Pennsylvania. Um, I've always been interested in the plant-animal interaction and how the plant affects the animal and how the animal affects the plant. Um, So uh, I started my education with animal nutrition or livestock nutrition. Um, My bachelor's and master's is both in animal science with an emphasis in ruminant nutrition. My PhD is in um, forage agronomy. And Um, I'm just interested in all the aspects of how forages affect overall animal health and animal nutrition. Very good. And uh, Jessica's a very good addition to the Agco Hay team. She can uh, help us in the engineering side, uh, also make sure we develop the right products to give you the highest quality hay possible. So today we're going to talk about ash and how to prevent it from technically contaminating your hay. So I know many of you have heard the term ash. Jessica, can you give the listeners a description of what ash actually is? Sure. So usually, most commonly, whenever we hear about ash and hay, it's often a bad term. But it's important to understand that ash is found internally in plant materials in nature. Um, Essentially, ash is inorganic materials that are found within a plant. They're minerals like calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium. But then we also have external factors that can be contributing to the ash content, like dirt. Um, I always like to make the joke that soil is what we grow our crops in, but dirt is what's in our hay and on our kitchen floors. And so um, dirt... Uh, bedding, sand, dust is all going to contribute to these external ash components. 
the average internal ash content of our legumes like alfalfa and clover is going to be about 8%. And of our grasses, our um, orchard grass, timothy, any of our warm season perennials is going to be bouncing around eight, I'm sorry, 6%. So anything additional past that 6% or 8% that's found internally within the plant is going to be considered ash contamination. And whenever you get your forages tested and the analysis comes back, the total percent ash in that sample is going to be reported. So make sure you take note of that. A lot of farmers are going to look at their crude protein. They're going to look at their ADF, NDF, which are going to be the fiber components of their plant. They're going to look at the total digestible nutrients and maybe the sugar content. But don't forget to look at that ash content as well. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the harvest management factors that really play into the overall ash content here in just a minute, Matt. But it's important to look at that ash content because that can really reflect some improvements maybe that you could make out in the field while you're harvesting this hay. And what's really important to know, and I'm going to talk about this several more times throughout our conversation, but these internal ash contents um, are very beneficial to the forage growth and for animal nutrition but additional ash contents above the internal amounts are gonna be negatively correlated with the beneficial nutrients in the forage. So typically an ash content in a forage sample is gonna range anywhere from five to 18% um, based on a lot of the research in North America. But most commonly, we're going to be ranging somewhere in that 9 to 11 percent. If we're in that 9 to 11 percent range, we're still going to have a really good quality forage that isn't going to be negatively affected by that ash content. Very good. So, you know, ash, since it is internal and external, the external portion of it would add, technically add weight to the bale. So if somebody's selling by the ton, that'd be a good thing yeah. to look at, but at what cost? Sure. So previously to recent research, digestibility of a forage was determined based on acid detergent fiber, which is one of the ways that we analyze fiber components within a forage. But this acid detergent fiber does not take into account ash considerations. So an equation that was derived looking at total digestible nutrients takes into account non-fiber carbohydrates, NFC. And you'll see this once again on your forage reports as well for your forage analysis. But NFC takes into account ash concentration. And if you take a look at that um, total digestible nutrient equation, you'll see that TDN is going to be inversely correlated with ash on a one-to-one -one ratio. So in other words, as ash increases 1% in your forage, the total digestible nutrients, or TDN as I'll refer to it a lot throughout this conversation, is going to be reduced by 1%. So they have this inverse relationship that is eventually going to take a toll on the productivity of the animal eating that forage. 
Good deal. So <clears throat> following up on that, the animal eating the forage is how much of the ash that gets built up would an actual cow or other livestock consume? Sure. So some of this ash is going to fall out through transportation. But if the hay isn't stored properly, it also gives the forage the opportunity to accumulate more ash. So keep that in mind as well. But all in all, significant amounts of ash aren't going to be removed from the hay after baling. Um, Perhaps just some on the outer layers of the bale. But if our balers are doing their jobs, we're going to have a densely, tightly packed bale that doesn't allow for much ash to fall off of that bale just like it's not gonna allow for much of those valuable leaf components to come off of the stems after it's baled if we have a nice densely packed bale. So counting on the transportation and feed out portions of your uh, management system to remove a substantial amount of ash from the bales isn't really recommended. We're gonna recommend you looking a little bit closer at your harvest practices to help to make sure that you're mitigating as much ash accumulation as possible. So Jessica, with that information, um, how does ingesting uh, the ash affect a dairy cow, for instance? I'm assuming they're affected the most, or do other types of livestock get affected just as much? Sure. So energy is going to be the most important nutrient in milk production. And just like we just talked about, we have that one-to-one displacement ratio of ash to total digestible nutrients. So for every 1% increase in ash over the internal ash constituents that we already have, we're going to see a reduction in potential total digestible nutrients by 1%. So in dairy cow rations, TDN is typically not used to balance dairy cow diets, but a derivative of TDN is used. And we call that NEL or net energy lactation. And this is a feed energy available for maintenance and milk production after the digestive and metabolic losses. Um, And it's going to be calculated based on available TDN. So in other words, all of that to say, the lower the TDN, the lower the NEL, and the lower the potential for milk production from that forage alone. So the lower the TDN of the forage, the more external supplementation we're going to need to add to her diet to make sure that she is optimizing or maximizing her milk production based on her stage of production. And that, um, how does that coincide with beef cows growth? So again, the reduction in TDN is going to be the kicker here. And for a young growing calf, whether that be a stalker or backgrounder calf or um, one that's just entering the feeding phase, a 1% increase in ash, which leads to a 1% decrease in TDN, can correspond to a reduction in a tenth to two tenths of a pound of gain, um, depending on their stage of production. So this inverse relationship in TDN can also reduce milk production in your lactating beef cattle which uh, again is going to require either an additional supplementation to meet their nutritional requirements, or they could potentially just wean a lighter calf. So does that, uh, is beef quality affected and milk quality affected from uh, consumption of ash or too much ash? 
So as far as I know, there's no direct effect on the palatability or taste of beef or milk. It's just a potential decrease in the amount of meat or milk a farmer can produce. So um, we have obviously determined that ash is uh, not a great thing to have within your crop and not for your animals to consume, but uh, what actually causes ash? Sure. So we know that we have that 6% in grass and 8% in legume um, innate ash material found within the plant. But most of the undesired additional ash is going to be coming from the soil or the dirt (laughs) from the ground. Um, Improper harvesting techniques, extremely heavy precipitation causing splashing of the soil onto the plant or flooding um, fields that completely get washed out and get flooded um, and the lodging can occur of that crop and some of that dust and dirt is just going to lay on that forage crop itself. Um, Another thing is dusty conditions, dry, windy areas And something that we might not even think about that's kind of unpleasant to think about is even just adjacent dusty dirt roads to our hay fields can cause an increase in ash content along that side of that hay field. I don't know if I've ever seen too many hay fields that weren't (laughs) adjacent to a dusty road. Yep. (laughs) Maybe that'll make people uh, think twice when they go flying down the the road. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said it's kind of unpleasant to think about. (laughs) Yeah, because we've all done it. Yep. (laughs) So what could uh, could a hay producer do to prevent ash from contaminating their hay? Um, I think avoiding harvesting lodged or recently flooded hay. can be one management tactic. And in a lot of cases, that's going to be extremely difficult to do. Um, but also playing, paying close attention to some details at harvesting, including mowing, raking, and storage. And we can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. Can anything be done to reduce the ash during the cutting process, for instance? Sure. So um, raising the cutter bar of a disc mower can help to lower the ash content because we're raising that a little bit further above the soil surface. But another cool thing that happens whenever we raise that cutter bar is we're generally improving the forage quality. So although raising the cutter bar will result in overall less tonnage, a trade-off of improved forage quality, prolonged stand life potential, as well as less less ash content can be found. So a legume mixture um, should be cut higher anyway to kind of favor the the growth habit of that grass. Um, But typically a cutting height of about three inches, sometimes four inches, um, is going to give us a, a good height to help to keep that ash where it's supposed to be. Very good. It's, a, it's always a, a difficult trade-off there, right? Uh, it definitely is. And I know that that breaks a lot of producers' hearts to raise that cutter bar because they know that they are reducing their overall tonnage. But if ash content, if, if high ash content in your forage is not an issue, then perhaps that's something that you don't need to do to reduce your ash, ash content. But um, if... if um, you're getting these really elevated 14, 15, 16% ash content, 
this can be a way to reduce that and reduce it fairly quickly because you're leaving that that soil down there where it's supposed to be rather than harvested and baled up in your crop. Um, another thing that we can do is use flat knives on the disc mower. Um, although angled knives can help to create some suction to pick up more of that um, lodged hay, it's also bringing in that ash content um, with, those, with that angle. Um, we talked a little bit about avoiding uh, lodged forage. Um, it's difficult to do if a flooding incident happens or if we just have a heavy rain and we can see that the lower third of that forage crop has some dust on it. But what you want to think about is if this flooding continues to happen in a certain hay field, or if you happen to be in a very windy part of the world and you're getting lodging because of high winds and you're often having lodged forage, think about planting either a forage species or a forage variety that is resistant to lodging. So that's just a way to kind of manage around that. If it's something that's a recurring factor and you know that you're going to start having lodging and you're going <clears> to <throat> need to start picking up that forage off of the ground, which is going to increase your ash content. Um, think about planting something that's resistant to lodging. And another thing that's often overlooked is mowing wide swaths. We think about mowing wide swaths a lot to help to decrease dry down time and increase our um, forage quality, but it can also help to reduce our ash content as well. So we're increasing the surface area of the swath and exposing it to more sunlight. We're reducing the dry down time and this might help eliminate the need for the pass of a tether. And that tether can incorporate more ash into the hay as well. Yeah, it's burning more fuel. It's uh, potentially more compaction in your field. So the less passes sure. you can make across there is always a really good thing. And another thing, Jessica, that I've <clears throat> found interesting is when you do raise your mower up a little bit higher, you do get some pass-through air under that crop mat. So maybe you can potentially get some dry down you know, uh, achieve through that process as well. So maybe that's a, a decent trade-off right there. Absolutely. So um, now that we've already done the cutting process, we've talked about that. Now we mentioned on the tedding side, but what about raking and tedding? Is there anything we can do to reduce ash there? Sure. So the number one thing is going to be to keep your rake tines from touching the ground. Um, and this kind of goes hand in hand with what you just talked about with the stubble height. So this is kind of a cumulative effect. Um, if we can keep the forage on top of the stubble, so um, we now have risen the, the mowing height or increased the mowing height. Um, so we have more stubble at cutting. It's gonna allow that forage to lay on top of that stubble. It's gonna dry down quicker, but it's also gonna help us so that we don't need to dig into the ground to put that forage into a windrow. Uh, some research has shown that rotary rakes um, introduce less ash into the hay because they're going to be power driven and the hay can be raked without the tines scraping the ground. Wheel rakes and sidebar rakes are ground driven and tend to incorporate more ash. They should be adjusted so that they have the maximum float that will still turn the wheels. 
And um, in a Dr. Dan Understander publication, um, he said that we can take a visual assessment during raking. So we're constantly turning around and looking behind us. And when we're raising a cloud of dust, we're adding anywhere from one to 2% ash into the hay. A merger has been shown to introduce the least amount of ash into um, our hay, but a lot of times that's really not practical for our midsize or smaller operations. So anything like a, a rotary rake is, is probably gonna do the best job at reducing overall ash contamination. And same thing with keeping your tether adjusted so it doesn't pick up the soil. Um, just keep in mind through raking and, and through tedding, the goal is to move the forage and keep the soil on the ground. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a good rule of thumb I use when I'm setting a rotary rake or a tether for that instance is I'll put my toe of my boot underneath it and uh, make sure you've got a good one to two inch gap, depending on uh, your field conditions. Now, of course, when you're having undulating field at some point, you're going to hit some dirt, but yeah, we try to reduce that as much as possible. Definitely. So we've gotten through that process. Um, what about in storage? Um, you're not collecting a lot of ash and baling. Hopefully, it's been spread out between the whatever raking process and stuff you're doing. And of course, some's going to come through your baler as well. But let's yep. just assume it's already gone through the baler. The baler didn't add any ash content. And what about storage? Sure. So storage is actually really important. Um, we can do everything possible to keep that ash content as low as possible during harvest. But if we're storing it out in the open uh, uh, on a, in a dirt lot, in a dusty dirt lot, we're really going to accumulate a lot of ash, especially on the external portion of that bale. So we want to store our hay bales off the ground if possible. It's not always possible, but if it is, that's always going to be our best solution. Um, since the, the bales that are set on the ground are going to pick up water from the soil and they could also increase in potential mold, um, which is going to reduce our overall forage quality even more. But just like we talked about that dusty road right along the hay field that kind of makes us cringe, keep in mind also your hay storage right along a dusty road. Um, it could really increase your ash content more than what you might realize. That is very interesting. I never uh, thought about that. I guess those yeah. <laughs> pole barns need sides on them nowadays because <laughs> nobody's going to have their hay stored, you know, miles into the field or something. Yeah, be, or else roads, just so blacktop your roads, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if somebody doesn't have, I mean, this is a, a, just another side question, but if, if somebody doesn't want to put as much money into their barn uh, situation and put concrete in, how thick do you think they would need their gravel or uh, rocks to be able to raise it up high enough to not have a mold issue then? Um, so, you know, storing on gravel is a really good option. It also provides a lot of drainage as well. Um, but I would say if you just get a, a, a one to two inch stone gravel, um, gravel stone, then um, it's probably going to gonna do fine. And if you um, stack that you know, probably two to three inches off of the ground. If you pile that two to three inches off of the ground, really drainage and um, keeping that dust off of the forage is our is our goal. Good deal. So, is there any additional information that you'd like to give our audience? 
Sure. So just remember, it's only possible to reduce ash so much. We talked about it several times. It's an innate characteristic of forage crops and some ash contamination is going to happen. We talked about those dusty roads and the flooding and the heavy rainfall um, and the wind storms. All of that are unavoidable in farming and it's just all part of it. But by analyzing the harvest process and making sure that what is controllable is controlled as best as possible, um, that's really just the best that we can do to reduce our ash contamination. Very good. I really appreciate your help. Today we had Dr. Jessica Williamson. Bundles of information. We hope to hear from her again soon. Uh, she writes quite a few papers for AgCo that you can uh, start to read pretty soon. And they get a lot of social posts and a lot of great information. And Jessica, we really appreciate your joining us and giving us all the lowdown on the ash. Yes, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. On our equipment spotlight today, we're going to talk about rotary rakes. As you heard from our ash content call, and best ways to reduce ash content is uh, one of the options is to use a rotary rake. Let's talk about Massey Ferguson rotary rakes for one minute. We have seven models ranging from 32.8 feet all the way down to just under 13 feet. Uh, you can get different options, whether you want a center delivery double rotor or a uh, center or right side delivery. And where that comes in handy is when you have really heavy crops. With the um, some of our models, we can do a right-hand deposit or a center in right hand. For those really heavy fields, if you have a really thick cut of Timothy, for instance, you can lay down two separate windrows with that rotary rake. Uh, we also have single rotor versions, which only deposit to the right-hand side. So, like I said, we have seven models, and we've got really nice features in there, like tine savers. Um, if you ever do break a tine for any reason, which is very difficult because our tines are the thickest in the industry, but if you do break one, they're easily replaced. You don't have to replace the entire tube or anything. They just bolt on, and they've got a tine saver there that would save the other one from breaking or falling off into your windrow that potentially could get bailed up. Uh, we've got nice features also with rotors that do not have to be maintained or maintenanced uh, on an even yearly basis. They have a, a sealed rotor so that you don't have to worry about getting in there and trying to find grease zerks where sometimes they're not available. Very low horsepower consumption. One thing I do recommend when running a, a rotary rake is even though they are technically a 540 RPM implement, I always recommend running them much lower. Um, so instead of the 540 that's maximum on the rotary rakes, I would suggest take them down to 480 or even even down to 400. Um, in some scenarios, I've gotten to where 380 was what was perfect for that field. So a couple of things to take into consideration when you're running your Massey Ferguson rotary rake is make sure you have a tractor that's big enough to run at low RPMs. Because if you have uh, a rotary rake, let's say it takes 48 horsepower, and you put a 48 PTO horsepower on that, rotary rake and you throttle it down to get to that 400 RPM uh, for your uh, PTO, that's going to bring your engine RPMs down substantially. And when you do that, you run the risk of, you know, cutting your tractor off because you've got to idle down too far, especially if you start to trying to increase your ground speed or trying to go up a hill. So one thing I do suggest is maybe getting a tractor a little bit bigger than what you have to have 
so that you can throttle it down and you can still maintain a good ground speed. Because lots of times with a rotary rake, even if you're turning at that 380, that's going to be a ground speed of six to seven miles an hour, which is what a lot of people want to do with a, any rake for that matter. But if uh, conditions are perfect and you can get up to that 10, 11, 12 miles an hour, at that point you'd want to bring it up to like a 450 RPM. So keep that in mind. Again, we have seven models ranging from just under 33 feet to just under 13 feet. And we have one that will fit almost every need that you could possibly have, and they'll help keep the ash out of your windrow and get you the highest quality hay possible. For more information on Massey Ferguson and Heston by Massey Ferguson Hay Equipment, please visit your local Heston by Massey Ferguson or Massey Ferguson dealer or visit MasseyFerguson.us. Join us next time when our guest will be Dr. Dan Undersander, Professor Emeritus from University of Wisconsin, a man with a lifetime of insight into hay. Here's a short preview. One can cut as late in the day as they want so that the alfalfa will still lose 15% of the water by nightfall. If it dries down to about 60% moisture, then respiration shuts down. We did 19-some trials where we cut in the morning and the afternoon, and here in Wisconsin, it was always better to cut in the morning. When we cut in the afternoon, we had more sugar, but when we harvested, we didn't. So uh, the key thing is to cut early enough that the forage will dry down to 60% moisture by nightfall, no matter where in the country you are. We'll see you in the field real soon.